Hey there, this is John Hewlin, host of the Relationships and Revenue podcast. So glad you decided to join me again today for another fantastic episode. This is part two of my interview with Lindsay Moran. Now, if you didn't check out part one, I highly recommend you stop right here, go back to check out part one of my interview with Lindsay because it is amazing. She is a former CIA operative. That's right. She, a former spy, you know, James Bond, Jason Bourne kind of stuff. Super, super cool things. And oh, I can't wait to share the other half of my interview with her with all of you. So again, check out part one. And then when you're ready, kick back, relax, and enjoy this second part of my interview, Lindsay Moran. This is Relationships and Revenue, the show where real answers come from real discussions about what holds men back in their relationships at home and in business. A better bottom line at work means improving life at home. This show is all about helping you become a better entrepreneur and a better man. I'm curious if you think there's a difference between the word failing and failure. Do you see a difference between those two terms? Absolutely. Yes. And it's, it's funny because it took me a long time to even ever admit to, uh, to even myself, the, the possibility of failure as I grew up in kind of a different, a, a, a different time, first of all, and, um, and with a different ethos. And to me, yeah, I was, um, not only afraid to fail as, uh, as a, kid and a young woman, but, but unwilling to fail. And so if I tried something, I tended to plateau in sports. Not that I was ever going to be a world-class or Olympic athlete. Um, but I was a swimmer. I was an equestrian. I was a rock climber and I was okay at all of those sports, but I tended to plateau. I think because I was never that person who was really going to push myself and and fail, let alone publicly fail. And I will say, you know, particularly my older son has such a healthier attitude about trying things and failing and having no shame in that and learning from that and pivoting, you know. Yeah. Um, and and we'll try things that, you know, maybe he has no business trying, but but doesn't let it bother him. So I think there, yeah. there is a difference between failure and failing. And I do think failures are a gift. I mean, I, I think I said to you, even in uh, one of our phone conversations before I came on the podcast, that um, very quickly, I started to look at this neck injury as a gift. Um, mm a gift to me. Uh, now, of course, I would feel differently, I'm sure, if it had been more catastrophic or the outcome had, had been worse. But I cannot help but think how much this has given me already in terms of, um, in, in terms of forcing me to sit still, uh, forcing me to think about things, and to be perfectly honest, getting back to my writing. Because I'm someone who's been on the go for decades now. And when I say not sitting still, I mean literally not sitting still. I'm not sitting still. You know, me sitting here and talking to you is the most that I ever sit still, sit still in any given period of time. So 
So being forced to slow myself down physically uh, has been a tremendous gift. Mm, I love that. I'm, I'm glad that you can see the value in that. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of folks don't. They, they view it either as a hindrance or as somehow uh, a curse even, that somehow it's preventing them from doing all these various things. But, you know, uh, I don't bring this out a lot on the podcast, but I do when I think it's appropriate. So I will hear. I happen to be a person of faith. People who watch and listen to this know that about me. And so I, this is my belief. I'm not throwing it on you. I'm just sharing it. And that happens to be, I think God prevented, provided you a, a tremendous opportunity with this to slow down, to reevaluate all aspects. Um, yes, it has allowed you to get back to writing some more, but there is something truly, I don't want to overhype the word, but there, there's something truly spiritual and faith-filled about slowing down. It's, it's actually referred to as a spiritual gift. There is a spiritual gift of slowing, and it, it, is, a, it is a discipline to do that to force yourself to slow down and be in the moment. Well, and and because you brought up faith, I'll I'll talk a little bit to that because I've always had a um I want to say like a complex a, a, a contrary relationship with with organized religion. I come my my mother is Jewish, my father was Irish Catholic and and they mm. kind of raised us with nothing. And that, and that's fine, but I have throughout my life had a bit of not a bit, quite a bit of envy uh, toward people of faith. And one of my um, favorite or one of the most impactful books I ever read um, by a Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl, called mm. Man's Search for Meaning. And I remember, yeah, it's just so amazing. And my, my uh, older son read it this year and it had a huge impact or last year and had a huge impact on him too. But I remember Frankel describing in the concentration camps how there would be um, there could be people who were completely uh, emaciated, um, but they were of profound faith and they would survive. And then others who looked, um, you know, relatively who weren't as emaciated or didn't look as close to death and those people would die. And Reading that, again, it compounded my envy for, for people of profound faith. So I admire that. I envy it. And I will say that my own uh, philosophy and my own feelings about faith continue to, to evolve, and nothing has made them evolve more than this experience. <laughs> I've always believed that God, whatever, whatever God is to one, um, that there are signs. I, you know, I, I've never believed that God does this or God does that, but I've always believed through my life that, that there are signs that are in front of you and they're put there by God, whatever your version of God is. And, but you only see them when you're open to seeing them. And this last accident, in the past year, I've had a whole host of, of signs. <laughs> two, week, two weeks before this accident, I was actually, my, my Jeep was sideswiped by a cement truck. Oh my God. And um, so when this happened, when the bike accident happened, that's when I said to, to my God, okay, you know, now I'm listening. Now I'm like, I'm paying attention. Um, and it, and it, it, to, to go back to the accident, when it happened, I fell off the bike. It was raining, head over the handlebars. Uh, I knew that I was hurt. I knew that I was in a lot of pain. I, of course, did not know my neck was broken. 
I got back on the bike and rode seven miles back to my house. Wow. And I, looking back on that, I, I, the, the memory kind of blacked out for a while. But later I w- remembered pedaling and pedaling and spe- telling myself, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And, and pedaling on and on, sobbing at the same time. And I later realized that for whatever, you know, I mean, scientifically, I broke the C1. It didn't, it didn't um, affect my spinal cord. And that's why the outcome wasn't worse. But also, I think there was a part of me where that's where my faith started to kick in. Interesting. Okay. You know, when the opportunity arises, I like to hear different people's faith journey and, and how it happened. And yours is right up at the top as far as uniqueness, to say the least. And so I can't wait to hear more about this journey as it progresses. Uh, truly, I cannot wait to hear more about that. It, I can't wait to learn more about the journey. <laughs> you know, in some ways, like, I, I feel like uh, with faith and spirituality, and I sometimes, I, I've always said to people, I'm not into organized religion, but I'm a spiritual person. And I realize now, that actually hasn't been totally true. You know, like I, I, I do think that I'm just sort of embarking on a, a journey or a spiritual quest. Um, and that maybe I, I haven't been ready to do that yet. I've been so distracted with everything else going on that it's taken a back seat. And again, being forced to sit still, being somewhat uh, disabled, uh, uh, albeit, um, thank goodness, temporarily, uh, it's like, oh, well, this is, there is a journey that I've always had wanderlust my whole life. Well, now I can't go anywhere. So I'm like, okay, this is, you know, I'll take a journey here. You know, I'll take a spiritual journey. We'll see where it goes. I want to jump back in again to the transition from the CIA to civilian life. But I want to focus more on the aspect of the business you created out of Mm -hmm. that and what that process was like for you, because it's different for every entrepreneur. So how did it come about that you've created this company, your personal brand, which happens to be Lindsay Moran, because you are the brand. How did you decide that's what I wanted to do? Did it just seem like a natural fit based on what you had just done? Well, you know, for years, people had had been telling me, you know, you got to do your own thing. You got to start your own business. And I was kind of a little bit afraid to really sort of take the plunge and declare, you know, I am going to be Lindsay Moran Consulting. Um, and that goes back, I think, to that, you know, that fair fear of failure, that yeah. that fear of, of stepping out on the, um, not just stepping out on the tightrope without a safety net. I don't care about the safety net. I just don't want to see any, I didn't want anyone to see me fall. Um, oh, yeah. And, um, but I am someone who professionally, and, and maybe to a certain extent, personally, thrives off challenges. And so, you know, a regular um, day job, so to speak, was never going to work for me. Like, never. After being in the CIA, I don't see how it could. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, it's funny because a friend of mine sent me as a joke, one of those Venn diagrams, like, you know, things that I'm good at, things that I get paid to do. Um, and, um, these things that I'm passionate about and there was no intersection for, for his, it was a joke. There's like no intersection. Right. Right. So, so that's always the problem. I think for me, part of the problem is like, um, 
they all kind of intersect. And that's not the, that, that's not a, once I realized it's not a problem that I'm like, oh, okay. I think that I maybe, you know, I thought, can I, can I make money doing the things that I'm good at, but that I also like doing? Um, and they're a little bit varied and they're a little bit weird. I'm, you know, I'm very good at human intelligence. I'm very good at investigation and, and collecting intel. Um, but I'm also a good writer and have a very analytical mind. So all of that is stuff that I'm good at. And okay, I can get people to pay me to do that kind of stuff. Um, but then where is the part of my life, you know, if I'm not serving my country, if I'm not, um, you know, serving, um, if, if I'm just working for clients, that's never going to be enough for me. Like, I'm never going to be someone who can go be a spokesperson on behalf of widgets because it's just not who I am. And not to say that I'm not materialistic in any way, shape or form. I have a passion for shoes. I have a ridiculous amount of shoes, you know, so <laughs> I will admit that. Like, it's not like I live in a yurt, you know, and and eat greens. Um, but I... I think I came to a, a realization that um, I can do that. I can have a business, but I can also not volunteer my time, but volunteer, you know, make part of my professional life serving a cause that I feel passionately about and for an organization and company that I really believe in the ethos and I really believe in the team. So there's Deliver Fund. And, you know, that's as the one aspect of my life. And then there's an aspect of my life, the investigative work that I do, that is just for me, I'm helping people out, I'm getting paid for it, but it's also tapping into my skills and expertise and it's fun. Like I, I like to do investigations. I like to find out what nobody else can find out. Mm. And, you know, sometimes I do it just for, you know, friends who are like dating someone new and I don't <laughs> cyber stalk people on my own behalf because that's just not my nature. But if you need to find out anything about anyone, you know, whether it be cyber or other means of investigation, I will find it out. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine because you can relate to this because you're divorced like I am. I can't even imagine being a guy who would date you. <laughs> what kind of, what kind of background check is happening <laughs> before we ever meet? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I actually don't, you know what, whether I meet someone in a business capacity or a personal capacity, I don't really do a lot of due diligence in advance. I don't check people out. I like to meet people and use my skills, some of them natural, some of them I, you know, acquired at the CIA to be able to read those people and, you know, figure out what makes them tick. And I, I, I love people. I love meeting people. You know, I, I think in my youth, I was more cynical. I was more judgmental. And I think another thing that, that being a mom does to you is it makes you forgiving of so many more people because everybody is somebody's son or somebody's daughter. Yep. So, you know, I look at, um, at people who, you know, make mistakes or, or they, they do inappropriate things, or even they do bad things. And, there's a part of me that is so much different from how I used to be when I was young in that I try to look at those people with some measure of empathy and try to understand them. You know, I can, I can relate to that. It's, it's not that I didn't provide forgiveness uh, before this, but once my divorce happened, um, my ability to be able to forgive other people began with my journey of forgiving myself. Mm, yeah. That's where it started. And once I got a hold of that and I understood not just the value in it, but the power 
that comes with that. It's very freeing, actually. It's very freeing to do that. So my ability to be able to forgive other people went up a hundred plus fold once I learned how to do that. I, yeah, and that's I just hard. Realized I mean, stuff, I stuff's just not as big a deal as it used to be. Yeah, and just I not. think if you're someone who's who's hard on yourself, and I am definitely someone who's hard on myself, um, you know, and I, I think that that comes from growing up in, in an era and in an environment where failure was not an option, you know? Um, and it's funny because, as I said, it's a very different dynamic with my kids. But um, having the wherewithal to be able to say you're sorry when you do something wrong and you make a mistake, and I do that to this day. You know, I posted a little tongue-in-cheek thing on social media about how my teenage son's you know, or leaving their dirty socks and underwear around just to joke uh, <laughs> while I have a broken neck. And it upset them. And they they told me that it upset them and they did not appreciate me making a joke like that on social media. And, wow. you know, I apologized. And I and this happened, by the way, today. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> this is very immediate in my mind. Yeah. But, you know, I kept saying to them, I'm so, so sorry. I'm so, you know, I feel terrible. And I really do feel terrible because it's not, you know, usually it's the kid who posts something stupid on social media and the parents had to come down on them. Um, but in this case, it, the situation was reversed. And, you know, finally, I'd apologize so much. And they're like, you know, get over it, dog. Like, it's like, we're, we've moved on. But I am someone who, yeah, if I make a mistake, I can be very, very hard on myself. So that's that's a way that I'm striving to be better is with self-forgiveness. And the other thing that I would say, you know, to harken back to, to being a CIA operative, um, Making mistakes there, I think one of the reasons that is such a stressful job is because mistakes can have grave consequences. Mm -hmm. And so it's a it's a tough environment for someone who's uh, who's hard on themselves to begin with, who's, <laughs> who's perfectionist, um, you know, and who doesn't want. And that was a lot of us. And that it's in the clandestine service. You know, we were mm -hmm. we were kind of high flyers and, and people who were used to succeeding and used to not making mistakes. So mm -hmm. learning to fail and learning to profit from our failures is something that, yeah, it's taken me a lifetime to, to even approach getting there. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, um, the, the way I, I define those terms, cause we were talking about failing versus failure a little bit ago. The way I, the way I define them is this failing is I tried something new. It didn't work. And I have an opportunity to learn from it. That's failing. Now, again, this is my definition of failure, but my definition of fa failure is it's an active choice to stay stuck. Mm, mm -hmm. And so the coach in me, when I'm talking to someone who's expressing either one of those, if someone's talking about failing, like they're at least willing to try because, you know, you're making suggestions as a coach and they're like, okay, I can work with that person. The person who is so focused on the, so afraid that they're going to do something wrong, that they're just, I mean, they're in cement. They can't mm -hmm. move. I can't help that person. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. That's a, that's a, um, yeah, that's a psychological prison that they're, that they're in right then. And, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because I have this game I like to, to play with myself. Um, you know, I always think about horrible periods in history, um, you know, the Holocaust being one of them. Mm -hmm. And, and again, to go back to that book by Viktor Frankl, um, because he he makes a point in the book that sometimes it wasn't the best people who survived. You know, sometimes right. it was people who were ruthless or self-serving who did survive. And so I've certainly have never been tested in that way um, and, and hope never to be. 
But I, you know, I always am fascinated by wondering, okay, if if I were thrust in that kind of ethical situation where it's my survival or it's being a good person, what would I do? I don't know what I would do, mm-hmm. you know? Um, similarly, I have always thought, because surprisingly, even though I'm a former CI operative, I and even though I rode seven miles with a broken neck, I have a low threshold for physical pain. I am not stoic by any stretch of the imagination in physical pain. And this is the first real, real physical challenge I've had in my life. Mm. And I always wonder, you know, I always thought, oh, my gosh, if I'm one of those people who's injured, I'm going to sit and feel sorry for myself and I'm going to complain and it would be, you know, my cowardly battle with whatever. Um, And what has been really great for me personally is realizing that, okay, I'm in these kind of uncomfortable and sometimes painful, sometimes really painful circumstances right now, but I am not that person. I am not that person who sits and complains and, you know, says, oh, woe is me. Every, I, I can't, I can't even get my head to go there because every step that I take and every second of every day now, I'm acutely aware that I, you know, a bullet grazed my head and I was very, very lucky. So, you know, if I lose movement in, in my neck, so be it, you know, if, if I have to wear this brace for the rest of my life, gosh, knock on wood, I hope not, um, <laughs> so be it. But you know, it's it's been a a nice moment of realization that, oh, yeah, I'm not someone who's going to sit around and complain. Like, I'm going to, you know, make the best of it. Absolutely. So one of the things we talk about on this podcast with frequency is relationships. And so I want to ask you, what are you doing right now, Lindsay, to work on, to improve, to make better your most significant relationships? And what impact do those relationships have on your business? Hmm. Okay. That's a really good question. Um, that's a great question. So I always say, you know, as a mom, my most significant relationships are with my children. Um, and that's true. And my, how I conduct myself in my relationships with my children has a direct bearing on how I conduct myself professionally. So, um, those, relationships with my boys are ones in which I am always striving to be my best self, um, where I listen, where I think it's important to listen, Mm -hmm. um, where I can be adaptable, uh, depending upon what their challenges or, or their needs are. Um, and where I have to approach it with, um, without selfishness. Now, I don't think, I, I don't believe in, you know, mothers not having lives of their own, um, I to the imagination. You've got to have your own life because they've got their own lives. So they don't, you know, they don't want me, <laughs> you know, um, uh, counting their hairs or counting their pimples or whatever. Um, <laughs> so, um, but I will say that professionally, because I, because in that relationship with my, my kids, you know, I'm always striving to be the best person I can be to set an example for them and to foster a good relationship that I try to carry all of those characteristics over into my professional relationships. Um, and I think the foremost is learning to be present and and learning to to listen. I'm a storyteller and I love to tell stories. Mm. And I also like can kind of be an attention hog. I like to entertain people. Like, you know, I like to be the center of attention. Um, and so really sitting back and listening to 
to my kids and in the same way, sitting back and listening to clients and figuring out what their needs are, you know, a client is going to pay me for a service. So really who I am has nothing to do with it. You know, they're coming to me because they need something done and I want to do the best job possible for them. You know, in the case of a client, because they're paying me to do it. Um, and because, you know, my professional reputation has always been very important to me. Um, and one thing that, you know, when my book came out, some people said, oh, well, she just joined the CIA to write a book. And that bothered me because it wasn't true. I think if it were true, it wouldn't really bother me. Like, who cares? Yeah, I joined the CIA and I wrote a book. You know, you go do it. Um, but it bothered me bec because truly, you know, at my core, that's not why I joined the CIA. Mm. I could see why that would bother you. That would bother me too. You know, one of the things I had to learn how to do, Lindsay, because I would say based upon your self-description, that it, there are a lot of things that you and I have in I mean, an alarming number of things that we have in common. And not the least of which is, you know, an old school way of saying it is a type A personality. I have that. Um, I am a firstborn. So there's a lot of characteristics of a firstborn that are very much true of me. Tell me if this sounds similar to something, at least in the past, that you had to deal with. Because this is what I had to deal with. When other people would be talking, in my mind, I'm already formulating four, five, six, seven, ten steps ahead of what I'm going to do, where I'm going to be, where I'm going to go, the different things that are going to happen. So I'm not really hearing what they're saying. I'm listening. I get enough detail that I can have a coherent conversation, but I'm not present. I'm not fully engaged with them. When I learned how to do that, it revolutionized every relationship I had. Yeah. And I, and, and that is something that I'm continually learning how to do and, and working on. And I do it better in a professional realm than I do uh, in a personal realm, but I have gotten better and, you know, I'm continuing to get better. I want to return just for a second to your question about relationships. Um, yeah. Because one of the things that has definitely impacted my personal relationships and romantic relationships is um, I still, to this day, uh, operate, like I said, you can take the girl out of the CIA, but you can't take the CIA out of the girl. And I tend to compartmentalize my life. And so, you know, whether it be my kids, my work, you know, my significant other, I... It's like everybody's in their box and um, and I'll come to your box when I'm ready to come to your box. And that, I, you know, and I think that um, that is something that, you know, I'm not quite there yet. Having that sort of I'm, I'm used to having a compartmentalized life. And, you know, when I was working for the CIA or, you know, even when I was um, married, uh, I had, you know, my professional and particularly because my professional life was something that I couldn't talk about with at that time, my fiance or anyone, um, I didn't. And, and it, it led to further compartmentalization. I mean, compartmentalization is a, it's a protocol at the CIA. You, everything is deliberately compartmentalized so that no person has, in, have, no one person has too much information about mm -hmm. what's going on. And I have, you know, carried that over into my personal life. And I don't think that's particularly healthy. Now, in a professional way, it actually is because I think compartmentalizing, you know, enables you to work on different cases, um, 
and keep that one separate from this one and, you know, to be analytical about that. So, um, but it, but it is something that, you know, it was a professional aspect of the CIA that I kind of ended up carrying over into my personal life. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, I think it bothers people. Nobody wants to feel compartmentalized. I wouldn't, you know, I don't want to feel like, you know, I'm the person that you see on Saturday. <laughs> right, right. Or two worst Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. Tuesday girl. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's it's like anything else. The only way it gets better is if you actively pursue it and you work on it. I mean, I, I don't care what the skill set is. doesn't matter. If you're not spending time working on it, it isn't going to get better. Uh, this is this is an example I like to use a lot um, because it's a part of my world. I know a lot of professional speakers, a lot. I've been doing it for a very long time. And when I was younger, I knew some people who were very gifted at professional speaking. I mean, I mean, way better than me, way better. And then I would see them 10, 15 years later, and they were at the exact same level that they Mm. were before. Their ability hadn't changed. It didn't get worse, but it certainly didn't improve. And that's because they knew they were gifted. They thought they didn't have to work on it. And so it never got better. And I far exceeded them in that time because I put in the work. The same thing is true when it comes to relationships. Um, I realize your time in the CIA is not unlike what it's like to be a male in this world where we are told as young boys that things like feelings and emotions are not our realm. We are told that, literally. Things like boys don't cry, I mean, that kind of tells you that. And so one of the things that I work on with men constantly, Lindsay, is to tell them, look, if it was your job or your client coming to you and telling you, look, we're moving in a different direction. We want you to come along. In order to do it, you've got to get this specific skill set. If you get it, you can stay on. If you don't, you're gone. Well, we're talking about something infinitely more important than a job or a client, and that is your significant relationships, the relationships you have with other people. If you don't work on this, if you don't get better in this area, you're going to destroy it. So I just tell guys, look, it's a new skill set. You got to learn it. That's all there is to it. Yeah. And, you know, one of the reasons, John, that I was interested in your podcast in particular is because I do have sons and um, and I love being a boy mom, you know, mm. and um, and I've, I've spoken, you know, somewhat about uh, my older son, uh, but I'm also incredibly proud of my younger son. And one of the characters characteristics that he and actually both of the boys exhibit is speaking up in a situation where somebody's being bullied or somebody's being wrong and i have never explicitly instructed my boys about that Mm -hmm. but somehow in the time that they've been raised by me myself and their father um they have come to recognize that that's important or that that's the way to be and you know Nothing makes me prouder than that. I don't care where they don't go to college. I don't care if they go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as I have raised the type of boys and men who do the right thing um, and who do the right thing when other people are watching and when nobody's watching, then yes. I know, you know, that I've succeeded. And I do feel, you know, the CIA, your, I mean, your your podcast speaks um, to men about how they can be better men. And the CIA is... It's it's to this day, you know, it's a very kind of testosterone driven world Um, and it's a difficult place 
to be as a woman sometimes. Um, oh, sure. And, you know, I used to, I operated well in the, in, in that world. Um, you know, I, I, um, grew up with my father and my brother in a very kind of male centric, um, household mm -hmm. and, um, and, and very much, a you know, not boys don't cry, but like Moran's don't cry. Uh, okay. Environment. So, you know, in some way, and even, you know, some of my friends are told, always told me, you know, you think like a dude, um, maybe I do, but, but so to be a part of that, um, environment where it's, it's not, not so much toxic masculinity, but, you know, a lot of egos there, a lot of testosterone and to see that the first thing I ever wrote about being a spy, why women make better spies mm -hmm. was partly because of what I said earlier, that our ability to read other people, to empathize with other people's feelings. I don't think those ability uh, should be confined or specific to women. I think those are abilities that, that men should have. And that quite frankly, as a woman are much more attractive than, mm -hmm. you know, the guy who comes swaggering in with oh, yeah. his toxic masculinity. <laughs> well, it, that is another thing that men can learn. They can learn how to do that. Uh, there has to be a desire to do it, first and foremost. Um, you know, one, one of the things that, that, that I do, I created a, a buzzword out there among, especially entrepreneurs, is creating a framework. I don't like using the same words that everybody else uses because I find that annoying. And so I created my own formula, if you will. It's called the F6, F as in Frank, F6 formula. It's the six areas of a man's life he tends to struggle in, especially after he gets married. And they happen to be faith, fashion, fitness, food, friendship, and fun. Those six areas. Um, and the reason that I came up with that is because those were the areas I struggled in when I was married. Um, and after my divorce, when I realized, you know what, I'm part of the reason that this marriage fell apart. There was nothing wrong with the institution of marriage. It's just, we did it wrong. We were the ones at fault. And so accepting what I did wrong in it and putting in the work to get better, to improve myself so I could have better relationships with everybody in the future. When I did that, it was as if scales fell off my eyes and I could see things I've seen before, but see them in a new way. And the way I describe it is when you're married, it's for a man anyway, it's like you're on a very fast moving train and you're going across the country. And in the far, far distance, there is a gorge and it is a big one. And the last time you looked, there was a bridge there. So you haven't thought about that bridge again, let alone the gorge. But in the meantime, that bridge has slowly over time crumbled, fell apart and dropped off. And it is no longer there but you're still barreling ahead just as fast as you were before. And you, if you don't do something, if you don't make the corrections that are necessary to build that bridge back, you are going to crash. And I can't begin to tell you the number of men. It's like, dude, I know where you're headed because I was there. I can see it. I see the warning signs miles away. So that's part of my purpose in life is to help other men not end up like me. Down at the bottom of the gorge. Right, because I don't want to see another man end up divorced because my divorce was completely preventable. It was, completely. And so I try to do things to help guys uh, with that. And, and one of the things that I, that I teach guys is, first of all, I tell them, again, this is my belief. I don't push it on anybody else. I said that I believe that God designed each man. It is in our DNA to pursue. 
we know how to do it. But there is something that happens to us. Once we get married, there's like a switch in the back of our brain and it turns off. Pursuit stops because it's like we have our prize. We, we got it. And so, okay. And that's why so many guys jump into careers heavy and or hobbies because mm. there's never an end. And hey, you forgot fishing with your F's. <laughs> I did. Fishing didn't happen to be my thing, but yes, you're right. There's another one I didn't put on there. Some people ask God his finances. Oh, okay. I thought you I did something else. But... <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, I didn't put. That's a different issue altogether. That is definitely a separate conversation. But um, no, and the reason that I named it F6 uh, is I'm from the Midwest. And in the Midwest, we have tornadoes. Mm, yeah. And they are on an F scale. Mm -hmm. Typically, you'll see it from an F1 to an F5. The higher the number, the more the destruction. There is the rare F6. And F6 isn't measured in terms of destruction. It's measured in terms of devastation. Mm. So when an F6 comes through, it's not like other ones where you see a bunch of, you know, smashed up houses and cars turned over and things just kind of basically a mess. F6 tornadoes remove. So they pick up houses from the foundation. They completely uproot trees and flatten hills. So however wide that F6 tornado is, that's how wide that path is of removing everything. And once that thing is done, it is as if nothing existed ever in that path, which is precisely what it's like in a man's life when those six areas are out of whack. Mm, yeah. It is exactly the same. And the problem is for us as men, because we haven't been trained to be in tune with what's going on inside of us, when we figure out something's wrong, it has been so bad for so long. It's, I won't say it's irreparable, but it's really close to that. Really, really close. Yeah. And I, I think I read somewhere, some study that like men are much more willing than women at a certain point in life to just stay the course, even when it's bad. Whereas That's women, you know, are kind of like out of here. <laughs> so, you know, the people, I think there was a period where people always thought, oh, the man, you know, leaves the woman or cheats or whatever. And at, at least in, in my experience, you know, with many um, friends and family have gone through divorce, a lot of times it's been the impetus, the woman has been the one who's, who's driven that. But, you know, largely because things have been bad for so long. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, we're getting close to wrap up time. But I was, there's a few more things I want to get to. There's uh, a question I ask everybody. What's your number one go-to habit? I can't believe I'm going to say this, but biking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when, I am, when I am stressed, when I am depressed, when I'm lonely, I hop on my bike, I get on the trail, and I go for like a two-hour ride. Yeah. Okay. That, I, I have not had anybody say that yet, so you are the first. <laughs> and it will be again. That will be my go-to habit again. Not for a while, but it will be again. There you go. I love that confidence. I love that. <laughs> if folks want to learn more about you, Lindsay, what you're doing, uh, the different places you are, where you're going, where are the best places to get in touch with you? Okay. I'll give you three places. Okay. Uh, LindsayMoran.com is my website, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-M-O-R-A-N.com. So lindsaymoran.com, you can check out my book at blowingmycover.com. And more, or perhaps most importantly, if you want to check out what we do at Deliver Fund, go to deliverfund.org, look at what we do, 
Um, we're a private intelligence organization that is truly at the tip of the spear in combating uh, human trafficking and slavery, both here in the United States and a, a global level. Mm-hmm. So uh, deliverfund.org, check it out. If you feel so compelled, uh, get in touch with me, give money, get in touch with me. I'm open to any questions, always open to hearing from people. So, Okay. Now, what, what I do at the end of every interview is I have a final four. They're just four quick questions. You tell me the first thing that pops into your head. Okay. All right. So here we go. Question one. Why did God create Lindsay? To make people laugh. Okay. <laughs> to make people laugh. I like that. All right. Question two. What are you doing, reading, or listening to right now that's helping you grow? Oh, uh, I'm forgetting the title. I think it's The Giving Network, um, but it's about philanthropy. And I might have the title slightly wrong, but it's mm-hmm. about philanthropy. Yeah, I think it's called The Giving Network. The Giving Network. Okay. Uh, number three, what do you do for fun? Uh, bike, walk my dogs, none of which I'm doing now. Um, listen to podcasts. I'm a real podcast junkie. Um, binge watch Netflix shows. I like Scandinavian Crime dramas and procedurals. Interesting. Okay. That's very specific. And hike. I'm a big hiker. In fact, uh, I was supposed to, right now, I was supposed to be hiking in Iceland. Uh, the, a trip that has been put off for, gosh, three times, three times now, two girlfriends and I have put off this uh, hiking trip to Iceland. We were finally going to go. I broke my neck. We've moved it to September. But um, these same friends, we've hiked the, um, the Grand Canyon from the North Rim to the South Rim in July, which I would not recommend. Also, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Also hike the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. So I love hiking, multi-day hiking trips. Okay. What are you most grateful for? My children. Okay. Um, a book that you would recommend to people? Well, you know, I'm going to go back to Man's Search for Meaning. It's an okay. oldie, but a goodie. I mentioned it before. Um, it is. It is... By far the most impactful book I've, I've read in my life. Okay. And you mentioned you're a podcast junkie. What are ones you, you partake of on a regular basis? Well, right now I've been listening to, and you have to subscribe to it. It's put out by Spy X. I think it's called True Spies. Um, it's pretty good. I feel like, hmm, I could have done that better. Um, but that's what I'm listening to right now. My favorite podcast of all time, it was a contained podcast, also spy-related, was called um, Wind of Change or Winds of Change. Mm-hmm. Fascinating story about the Scorpions song, uh, for those of you who are heavy metal aficionados. But remember that old Scorpion song, Winds of Change? Mm-hmm. It became very popular with the fall of the Berlin Wall. So yeah. this particular podcast, it, and uh, I also like, I'm not like a really heavy metal head, but I do have a weakness for heavy metal ballads. And that was one of my favorite songs. Interesting. Um, okay. Yep. And so there is a theory, and I will not say whether it's proved or disproved in this particular podcast, but there is a theory that that song was written by someone at the CIA and fed to the Scorpions to try to propel the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union. Great podcast. Taps wow. into like, all of my little kind of quirky passions like Eastern Europe and Soviet stuff. And I went to the Soviet Union when I was 17 back in 1987. So I've always been fascinated with that part of the world and heavy metal balance. So, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, based upon what you were sharing earlier, it sounds like you're not as satisfied with the current um, 
podcast that you're listening to that's spy related. So it sounds like that could be something in your future. <laughs> well, then I might just have something up my sleeve. <laughs> okay. Okay. No need to know yet. <laughs> that's right. Not yet. Not yet. Well, listen, Lindsay, really want to thank you so much for Thanks sharing. Thanks for having me, Donna. This has been really fun. It's been a, and you know, I've done a lot of podcasts and, and interviews and, and yours, you know, I've listened to some of them in advance and they were a little different. So I was excited to do it. It's been fun. Well, thank you so much for being here. Certainly appreciate your time and your willingness to share as much as you could legally share. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely appreciate that. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. Uh, you guys are my heartbeat. You are why I do this. Uh, I'm thankful for each and every one of you for investing your most precious resource, and that's your time, because I know it's not renewable. So thanks again. We'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Relationships and Revenue. I'd love to get your thoughts on the show. Two ways you can do that are to give us a rate and review, and or connect with me on social media. You can find me at John Hewlin. Thanks again for listening. And remember, passion gets you started. Purpose keeps you going. Have a great day and we'll see you next time. Bye.